he went to his room and he made a new sign, put it up on his door, and we didn't see it after he died. And it said, Brian's on a trip, don't worry about me. That was his death, but that wasn't the end. And my child showed me that there's something more than what we have been taught is true with our reality. Neither my wife nor I uh, had any idea that this was today. Even though Brian, you know, kept saying, <laughs> he told us about as clearly as he could. That's the gift of child's dilemma, is they can see through the baloney of all the things that we do and say, uh, but they're not empowered to change them. And now, ladies and gentlemen, Banal of America Audio, with your host, Tim Banal. What is going on, my friends? This is Tim Benall of BenallofAmerica.com with another edition of BOA Audio Season 6. That theme music you just heard came from our buddy Ian. Big thanks to him for contributing the theme music for this installment of the program. We got a whole slew of contributions from BOA Audio listeners that I have to dig through, and I will be doing that soon, I promise. But if you want to contribute theme music for future installments of the program, send it off in an email to boaaudio at hotmail.com, and I'd be happy to give it a listen. No in-house notes this week, no pressing BOA news, so let's get down to business on this edition of the program. This time around, we're going to be welcoming Dr. Greg Corbin, author of the book Beyond Reason, Lessons from the Loss of a Gifted Child, and he's going to share the amazing story of how his nine-year-old son, Brian, actually predicted his own death. Greg is going to recount Brian's initial prediction that he wouldn't see double digits and how he over time prepared his loved ones for his impending demise. We're going to learn about how Brian left a number of after-death messages to his family and how children predicting their own death is a far more prevalent trend than is being reported in the mainstream media. Along the way, Greg is going to tell us about his journey from paranormal agnostic to believer, as well as the profound changes that grief can inspire in every individual. It is a heartbreaking and heartwarming edition of BOA Audio, as Dr. Greg Corbin shares the remarkable and really magical story of his son, Brian. For those of you who are unfamiliar with Dr. Greg Corbin, allow me to provide you with a little background on him. Greg Corbin enlisted in the Army after high school and served as an artillery officer during the Vietnam era. He then attended Duke University and Duke University School of Medicine, specializing in anesthesiology and pain management. Dr. Corbin taught at Duke and the University of Virginia Medical Schools, entered private practice, and now directs an outpatient surgery center. He has authored books and research articles and developed new techniques that are widely used in his field. Dr. Corbin has also had a long-standing interest in outdoor education and is a senior facilitator at the University of Virginia's Poplar Ridge Challenge course. While an undergraduate at Duke, he created a week-long adventure course for incoming freshmen, now called Project Wild Wilderness Initiative Learning at Duke, which became a model for many university outdoor programs. He holds a black belt in Taekwondo, a brown belt in judo, and has logged over 40,000 miles as a bicycle commuter. Dr. Corbin has known both challenge and pain, but it was only through the death of his son that he found their common source. He 
He lives in the Blue Ridge Mountains of Central Virginia with his wife and children. His website is www.beyondreason.info. Pretty simple, all one word, beyondreason.info. Check it out. And with all that said, let's get down to business and rock and roll. This interview was recorded on October 6, 2011. Dr. Greg Corbin, talking about Beyond Reason, Lessons from the Loss of a Gifted Child, on BOA Audio, Season 6. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of BOA Audio Season 6. This time around on the program, we're going to be learning about a heartbreaking and enlightening and fascinating story. Our guest is Dr. Greg Corbin, and he's the author of Beyond Reason, Lessons from the Loss of a Gifted Child, which tells just the remarkable story of his son, Brian and uh, his passing, and I don't want to uh, spoil it too much, so I'll, I'll just leave it at that before we get into it. And uh, as I said, just a heartbreaking story, but enlightening and, and fascinating altogether, and, and just a compelling uh, journey that not only uh, happened with Brian, but also the journey that Greg went on following the death of his son. So I had the chance to read the book this afternoon, really enjoyed it quite a bit, and uh, heard Greg on Coast to Coast, and was just absolutely riveted by his story and knew that we had to get him on BOA Audio. So welcome to the show, Greg. It's really a thrill to have you on the program. Thanks for having me. Uh, you know, let's start off. We usually kick off the program here with sort of a bio background. You know, who is Dr. Greg Corbin? And take us up to up to when really the story beyond reason begins. Well, I was a, uh, an academic anesthesiologist. Um, I taught at uh, Duke and then University of Virginia. And... Uh, was married, and uh, Brian was my uh, my first child. Um, and I was kind of a typical uh, driven, hardworking physician, um, working 80-hour weeks at the university. Um, didn't believe in anything paranormal. Uh, I'd been taught that there was you know, absolutely no evidence of any paranormal activity that had ever been verified or anything like that. And uh, so I married my wife. She's a minister. Uh, then we had our first child. And then after that, my life just changed drastically. Um, before that, I was really uh, an intellectual, had trouble relating to people uh, emotionally. I was very afraid of death, and I, I was very uncomfortable, as I've discovered a lot of physicians are, um, talking to uh, bereaved people or people that are dying. You know, I come in the room, and... Um, somebody would be, you know, afraid that they were going to die or something like that. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the, my goal was to get out of there as quickly <laughs> and, and gracefully as I could. Yeah. Well, you know, and there are jokes like, oh, don't worry, only the good die young, you know, stuff like that as you're walking out the door. <laughs> well, what, what do you think, at, to, at the risk of uh, interrupting, you know, the bio background, what do you think that is? What do you attribute that, that trepidation to? Well, most physicians I discovered are very afraid of death. Yeah. And, one reason we go into medicine is a way to deal with it, where we gives us some some illusion of control. Hmm. Um, but basically, I discovered after Brian died, I could tell we had a reception after the after the funeral service, and uh, I mentioned in the book I could close my eyes and tell you know because people would come up and give you a hug and uh, cry with you or say you know some heartfelt words, and I could pretty much tell who my physician friends were. I could close my eyes and I could tell because even if they were crying and if they 
came in to give me a hug, they'd hold their bellies back. And I realized I always did that too. And they just couldn't commit. You know, the best, the nurses, turns out, were some of the best, gave the best hugs. <laughs> they put their belly right up against yours, and you'd both be crying, and your bellies would just be kind of jiggling up against each other. I mean, uh, there was just a real connection. So um, that came easier for nurses than for physicians. Hmm. Okay, so then Brian's born. I was really uh, taken aback just at how difficult his life as a newborn was. He was born. It turns out my secret fear during the pregnancy was that I would have to resuscitate uh, uh, Brian when he was born. And that's what anesthesiologists do. Every anesthetic is really in a resuscitation. And um, uh, you give them medicine, put them to sleep, they stop breathing, and you resuscitate them. Mm-hmm. And so um, uh, that's what we do all the time. But for some reason, I had a real dread. <clears throat> it was the one recurring fear I had, which was um, um, it was uh, uh, a glimpse of the future. So... Uh, Everything was great with the pregnancy. It was our first kid, and I grew up as an only child, so I really wanted a big family. I loved being playing with kids. Yeah, I, it's you know hard for me to relate to adults, but I can play with kids, <laughs> and uh, maybe a good chance for a you know good excuse for me to kind of act like a kid, which I never really did growing up too much. So uh, everything went fine, and uh, Catherine went into labor in January. We went into the hospital. Let's see, it was January second. Uh, we went into the hospital and we discovered that our obstetrician was out of town on vacation. And the fellow who was covering for uh, her, uh, we hadn't met. And uh, so he introduced himself. And uh, that kind of was the beginning of the nightmare of Brian's uh, uh, delivery. Because uh, it took us uh, hours to, you know, to figure it out. But uh, he was insane with schizophrenia. And uh, everybody apparently in the hospital knew it, but but nobody told us. <laughs> so Catherine was, you know, the plan was for her to get an epidural to control the pain, which is ironically what I do. You know, at the time I was like an expert in it, wrote books and gave lectures about them. Mm-hmm. But I didn't have privileges at this uh, community hospital. So he kept saying he would order it, but he never did. He was lying to us. But it took us a while to figure that out. And then... He would come in and say something one time and come back and say the opposite the next time. And in the midst of all this, it was just getting, you know, it was very stressful. You know, your wife is screaming in pain. That's my specialty is pain management and epidurals, and I can't do anything about it. And uh, the obstetrician, who would think that he was, uh, you know, he was crazy? Yeah, I'm surprised that he still was had the job. I mean, if everybody knew about it, was it sort of like in the process? They were in the, sort of in the process of Yeah, he uh, he lost his privileges uh, two weeks later, I think. Oh, he, wow. He took a baby out of the uh, nursery, and uh, somebody got him as he was going out the door. And oh, uh, he said he was taking the baby to go see God or something like that. And he lost his privileges, and then uh, the poor fellow committed suicide two years later. So Wow. So, but, uh, but so anyhow... Brian's birth um, was a nightmare. So then finally it was time for Catherine to push, and I thought, oh, thank God, you know, the 10-hour ordeal, the, the labor is over. But uh, Catherine pushed out uh, Brian, and he was a beautiful baby. And then the obstetrician picked him up, cleaned him off, gave him to a nurse. She put him in the, in the uh, little bassinet. 
And then everybody turned away to look at Catherine, and I was the only one who noticed when he stopped breathing. So I called for help and started to resuscitate him, and I brought him back. And uh, then we discovered he had a heart defect, needed open-heart surgery at the age of five months. And then he got transferred but right away. He got transferred to the university, and they did a cardiac catheterization to tear open a hole between the upper two chambers. He had what's called transposition of the great arteries, which means his heart's hooked up backwards. And so he was, there are four different kinds of heart defects that make you a blue baby. And so he was blue. He never turned pink like he was supposed to. So they temporarily fixed it, and then we took him home after a few days, and, uh, and then we discovered other things wrong with him, too. Uh, he had, um, oh, ear infections right away, and uh, so he had trouble nursing, and he was screaming in pain, and he had colic. And he was screaming in pain most of, the, of his waking hours for the first, like, six months. My goodness. And then he had uh, the left side of his nose hadn't opened, and babies can only breathe through their nose. And so he had difficulty breathing, especially when he was asleep. So he was struggling for air, which was ironic because as an anesthesiologist, when I put somebody to sleep, I take him to the recovery room and I make sure that they're breathing well before I leave them. Yeah. And Brian was breathing so poorly, and there was nothing I could do because the uh, ear, nose, and throat people couldn't do anything until his heart got fixed. And then he had multiple operations on his ear, it turns out his left side of his ear, uh, left ear, didn't work, and um, and then his, his thumb needed some cosmetic surgery, and he got some uh, uh, several infections, had to be hospitalized for that. So the first three years were really a nightmare, uh, and we were just, you know, we were totally strung out. And then um, Catherine, most of the brunt of that fell to her because I was working in the hospital so much. Um, as a workaholic uh, academic physician, I was working so many hours, so Catherine was the one who was spending you know, days every week in doctor's offices with a screaming baby, and, and Brian was getting all kinds of you know, needle sticks and bad testing medicines and stuff like that. And she was two, uh, okay, so Brian was two when Catherine found out she was pregnant uh, with Lynn, our daughter. Um, and uh, at the time, Catherine was getting like only a couple hours sleep a night because of all of the, the things we had to do and Brian's problems and everything. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Lynn was born. And then she had really bad colic, too. So she screamed in pain for nine months, pretty much. And then when she was one and she couldn't roll over by herself, then we, we learned that she was brain damaged, uh, had cerebral palsy and learning disabilities, and autistic spectrum disorder and stuff like that. Yeah. So basically, we were devastated. I mean, uh, all these all terrible things were happening to our children, and uh, you know, we were just we were just totally at our wit's end. So, um, you know, that's the dark the dark part. And then, pretty much after three years, Brian's procedures were done. We were told he should have a normal life, and and uh, he uh, turned out to be this really gifted <laughs> kid. Uh, he was a real entertainer, a real character. And uh, he was always coming up with something. Um, I think he was like four. And uh, he had this great memory. He was much smarter than I was, much more gifted. Yeah. And uh, one example would be um, Catherine took him to the little country store down the road when he was four. And she went in to shop and 
Brian was outside, so there were a bunch of teenagers out there. So he couldn't resist going over talking to the teenagers. <clears throat> Good audience for him. So we went over and talked to him for a couple minutes. Catherine came out, <clears throat> and Brian had him spellbound. One of the teenagers came over and said uh, uh, and very earnestly, Oh, I'm very sorry to hear about his cousin Kim. And Catherine said, His cousin Kim? And the teenager said, uh, Yes, the one who fell off the dock in Alaska and drowned. <laughs> and Catherine <laughs> Brian would get the sheepish look on his face. And Catherine would say, Well, I'm sorry, he's been telling you a tale. He doesn't have a cousin Kim. <laughs> so that's the kind of kid he was. He was always, you know, he was always cooking up something, like a neighborhood vaudeville show, charge admission, you know, organizing a crop walk for, for world hunger, something mm-hmm. like that. But he didn't fit in because he was really gifted. Of course, we didn't figure that out until academically gifted. We didn't really figure that out until a little bit before he died. What do you mean he didn't fit in? He was sort of just uh, well, he, he really didn't like school. He really didn't like, uh, uh, you know, church. Didn't like being told what to think. Um, kind of saw through a lot of the, a lot of through the baloney. Yeah. In our culture, that's the gifted child's dilemma: is they can see through the baloney of all the things that we do and say, uh, but they're not empowered to change them. So he really didn't care for school too much. Um, and then he was in, I think, let's see, uh, second grade. Let's see, I think he died when he was in second grade. So uh, it was coming up to his ninth birthday, and he started becoming very kind of introspective and quiet. And then it was time for us to plan his birthday party. And then he told us that um, that he didn't want to have a birthday party. He said uh, a birthday party would only bring his death closer, and he wouldn't live till double digits, which meant age ten. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know we we were dumbfounded. I mean, you know, he was he felt like he was in perfect health, and the, 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 all the doctors told us, you know, that there was absolutely nothing wrong with him, and he didn't have any symptoms of any problems. And so we just couldn't understand why he would do that. And um, he started getting very depressed and had trouble sleeping. And Catherine would spend, oh, an hour or two at bedtime with him trying to calm him down. And he would ask all of the difficult questions about death and, and uh, suffering. You know, if God's all-powerful, how can he let children suffer and things like that? Yeah. Now, did he ever, like, say where he got this feeling from, like what, like how this premonition came to him? No. No, and, uh, well, for one thing, we didn't believe him. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> I mean, you can imagine, if I could go back now in time, uh, knowing what I would know now, I would be completely, I would be much more supportive of him. But, I mean, that's, you know, that we did the best we could. Yeah, you, how do you react in a situation? You know what I mean? It's, it's. Mm-hmm. I, I, I mean, I think that the way you guys did react just seems fairly, you know, normal. I mean, what else could you really say? You just try to assuage those fears and, mm-hmm. you know, move well, past even, them, I guess, I mean, right? My wife's a pastoral counselor, and I'm my specialty is pain management, which is, like, mostly psychology. So, I mean, I've, I've always been around psychologists and psychiatrists, and we couldn't understand, uh, you know, if there were any hidden issues going on here mm-hmm. because we couldn't find them. And we got desperate. We asked for help from, you know, family and friends and teachers and people at church and stuff like that. 
So um, there were like 50 people that knew that we were struggling with Brian's premonition of his death. And, uh, and then we took him to a psychologist because we ran out of other things to try. And, uh, you know, Brian really enjoyed going to meet Dr. Dan because Dr. Dan taught him about psychology. And uh, Dr. Dan really liked Brian because Brian kind of showed him the inner workings of his mind and also gave him some hints of some mystical knowledge, which, yeah. which I guess uh, Dr. Dan was hungry for. So they became great friends, and they really enjoyed their time together. But we never discovered any new issues to deal with. So that was uh, several months and through the winter. And then at the beginning of the spring, um, Brian started coming out of his depression and uh, started becoming his old self again. And then um, about a few weeks before he died, he said it was time for his, uh, you know, time for his uh, belated birthday party. But it wasn't, he didn't want it to be a birthday party. It was going to be a happy spring party with no uh, presents and just his three best friends in attendance. Mm -hmm. uh, he had a little girlfriend, Jamie, and uh, his best friend, Ben, and another little boy, Cammy, who always wanted to be friends with him. And Brian hadn't really reciprocated. Now, in that three weeks, we realized one, you know, that he was later, after he died, we realized that he was tying up all of his loose ends. You yeah. know, like somebody tells you you're going to die in three weeks, you go ahead and finish up all your uh, all your accounts and uh, settle all your, you know, all your unfinished business. Mm -hmm. um, well, he was doing that, but we didn't realize it at the time. But all the things that he'd been meaning to do, he he did. He wrote his grandparents, and he um, uh, got he died the day before Mother's Day, which um, he died on a Saturday, and Mother's Day was Sunday. Um, he wrote a special poem for Catherine for her Mother's Day, and got her Mother's Day present in advance, which was out of character for him. And uh, he also got my Father's Day present, even though that was months away. He insisted Catherine get it. You know, a little Oscar that says World Greatest Dad. Yeah. And he was very much like Calvin of Calvin and Hobbes. That was his favorite, his favorite uh, comic strip. And he memorized all the books. So if he wanted to make a point by telling a joke, he'd say the, you know, Invincible Calvin and Hobbes or whatever it is. Page 45, we'd look it up, and that would be the, the joke that he wanted us to know. <laughs> so now Calvin, and he got a lot of ideas from Calvin, like uh, Calvin locked the babysitter in the bathroom, so Brian did that too. <laughs> and uh, we get a call from, you know, a friend, a call <clears throat> from the babysitter that Brian's locked her in the bathroom, <laughs> so we'd have to go convince Brian to let her out of the bathroom, things like that. And Calvin had a parent's ball uh, that he used to torment his parents, and, and Brian thought that would be a good thing to do too. So whenever we gave him Whenever we told him to do something he didn't like, like clean up his room, he'd post a parents' poll, and our, you know, our approval ratings would go down. <laughs> he'd post it up in a prominent spot. Um, so he was doing. He started doing parents' polls about then, and then uh, two days before he died, Catherine was coming home in her car, and we have a long driveway. We're out in the country, and. Uh, she saw Brian halfway down the driveway pulling his little red wagon loaded with his camping gear and his teddy bears. And she got out of the car and said, uh, Brian, where are you going? And he said, <clears throat> it's time for me to go on my trip. Now, he had been talking about going on a trip 
for since he started planning his party. And he mentioned it a little bit, and he was mentioning it more and more as we got closer to the you know to the time he died. And one day it would be to Montana, another day to Wisconsin, something like that. So Catherine said, "Well, you can't go on your trip now. We have your party in two days." So she got out of the car, sat down on the road, on the gravel road, and put him in a lap. And she said, well, and if you go, I'll miss you terribly. And uh, Brian said, well, you don't understand. This is something I have to do. I have to go. I can't be a wimp. And so they talked for a little bit, and then Catherine came up with compromise. She said, well, I'll tell you what. Instead of going on your trip now, why don't you wait a couple days until after your party, because your friends are coming. And what we'll do is tomorrow night, we'll pitch your tent, and you and Sasha can camp out. And uh, uh, that can be your trip for, you know, for now. Yeah. Now, he, Brian, had tried doing that in the past, but he'd always be- become afraid of the dark and kind of chickened out and came back in. So he, he thought that was a great idea. So Catherine drove back home, and Brian turned around and pulled the wagon happily back up to our house. And the next day, they got the house ready for the party. We pitched the tent, and Sasha, our dog, uh, and uh, Brian's teddy bears, slept out in the, the tent. Uh, now, Sasha was our family dog. She was like an Eskimo dog. And I didn't really realize it till many years later. But she was one of the bravest creatures uh, that I've ever met. Maybe the bravest. Um, she was uh, only about 40 pounds. Then I went out once uh, running, and she came along with me. And these three really big dogs, really big, mean-looking dogs, kind of came out of this house uh, and running down the hill to attack us. Oh, boy. And, uh, uh, you know, pretty scary. Very oh, each, each dog was about two to three times as big as she was. Yeah. She turned around, and uh, you talk about, you know, it's not the, the size of the dog in the fight, but the yeah. fight in the dog. Yeah. Uh, she turned around and went into them like a buzzsaw. I mean, I have never seen such fury. And it was like the most amazing thing. The fight was over in one second, and the other, these three really big, mean-looking dogs tore off. And uh, um, that's one story about her. But uh, what I realized later was that uh, we had an electric fence also, and she would go through it. Just, you know, to walk with us, to go down the driveway. No matter what we did, we increased it and we did everything. Yeah. And she would take the shock to stay with the family. And we had a neighbor who she didn't like, who carried a 357, and he has got, you know, he has problems. And he always threatened to shoot her. That's one reason we got the electric fence. <laughs> and we couldn't stop her because when we, you know, go to get the kids from the bus stop or something like that, she'd come along and she'd just, she'd go through and she'd yelp when she'd get the shock. And uh, I don't know if you've ever felt the shock on that, but I went, I held up the electric collar and went through it once and it brushed my hand as it went off. My hand was, you know, really ached for a couple hours. Oh, wow. And uh, we had increased it to the maximum, you know, for like a dog that weighed four times as much as she And she'd still go through it. And so um, I, you know, I'd done everything I could to try and keep her away from this guy who was threatening to shoot her. And so I just... I, I sat down with her, and I said, Sasha, you know, you're a member of the family. We love you, and uh, I've done everything I can to protect you, but I can't do anything more. If you go through the fence, 
this guy's going to shoot you, and that would be, you know, a real tragedy. Yeah. And I talked to her, and after that, she quit doing it. Hmm. We could turn off the fence, and she wouldn't do it anymore. So, anyhow, just to give you some idea of all the help we had and all the help Brian had. Yeah. So she slept with him, and I have no doubt that she was giving him her care, uh, her courage. She was helping him with that. Because he, he slept through the night, and he came in the next morning so proud of himself for overcoming his fear of the dark. Um, his friends came, and it was the most beautiful spring day you ever saw. Uh, clear blue sky. Uh, the air was cool, really clear and bright. And uh, unusual for that time of year, the air was full of honeysuckle. Really sweet. Hmm. Most beautiful spring day I've ever seen. Um, so Brian had his friends. They had their party. Uh, they had a great time. And, uh, uh, and he didn't want any presents, but his girlfriend gave him a kiss. And Ben wrote a song for him, Friends Forever, Always Together. And Cammy uh, uh, just said he was grateful for being able to have, you know, the friendship that they, they had established, really, at the party. Yeah. Um, and then uh, the parents came to pick up the, the friends, and Brian went to his room for an hour to do a few things to get ready before it was time for his baseball game. Now, he'd sign up for Little League at my encouragement because he was kind of such a cerebral little kid, and I thought it'd be good for him to do a team sport and get to meet other kids and stuff. Mm -hmm. But he was the littlest kid on the team, wasn't very athletic, and, uh, and uh, he was afraid of the hardball. And... He'd had his first game the week before, and he got stranded at, at third base, never scored a run. This baseball thing was kind of a little bit of a stretch for him. Yeah. And he was kind of working at it. So we went to his room, and what we didn't realize uh, until afterwards, but he also put signs up on his door, sometimes humorous, you know, keep out Brian's room, this means you, something like that. Uh, so he... He went to his room and he made a new sign, put it up on his door, and we didn't see it till after we came back, after he died. And it said, Brian's on a trip, don't worry about me. He wrote a couple letters to a couple girls in his uh, class, because he, he was a, he liked girls. <laughs> and even though he had his girlfriend over, that didn't mean he couldn't flirt with a couple other girls. <laughs> so he wrote a couple letters there, and then he also put a parents poll up. We didn't see that either until we got, uh, and he put it up right where we could see it when we walked in the door after he died. And uh, for the first time, he gave us a perfect 2,000. But, of course, we didn't see that until until after he died. Then he, he put on his uniform, and it was time for me to take him to his baseball game. Now, um, let me just jump in quick here. Was there any indication that, you know, did he ever give any, like, sort of specific timeline, I guess is, is what I'm saying. Like, you had no idea of taking him to the game or even at the party or anything like that that, now, obviously, you so say you didn't believe him, but, you know, you didn't have any indication like that day that this was the day, right? No. He, didn't, he didn't, except for the thing that, where he said he was going to take a trip soon. No, no, absolutely. Um, uh, we had, didn't, have, didn't have a clue. Now, there were all these forces at work that I didn't really realize till later. Like, about the time he said it was time for his party, the latest photograph we had of him that we had framed uh, began to fade. And uh, it was fading over that three weeks to the point where I ordered a new one, like a couple of days before he died. Hmm. And there were all of these, all of these things that were coming together that were completely out of my belief system. Yeah. So I didn't, you know, I wouldn't allow myself to, to understand what was going on at that time. 
But no, neither my wife nor I uh, had any idea that this was the day. Even though Brian, you know, kept saying, <laughs> he told us about it as clearly as he could. Yes. Okay, so you're taking him to the game, and, and okay. you know, feel free to continue. So we're driving down the driveway, and and uh, he says, okay, stop. Uh, I want to put these letters in the mailbox to those two little girls in his class. And they didn't have stamps on them. No, you have to have stamps. Uh, Brian was, like, really smart, and he knew that they needed stamps. I said, Brian, you know, those won't get delivered without stamps. He said, no, you don't understand. They will get there. So rather than argue with him, he was very determined, uh, we left the, the uh, letters in the mailbox, and I took him to um, his baseball game. He was really enthusiastic about playing baseball, which was a change for him. And on the way to the baseball field, he said, that he wanted to score a run today more than anything. That was his uh, that was his goal. Uh, we got to the baseball field, and he jumped out of the car. He was a different kid. I mean, he was, like, really having a great time playing baseball. He lost all of his fear. He was charging the ground balls and leaping up after fly balls and begging the coach to put him in, make him the pitcher, which he wasn't good enough to do. But it was like, this is like a different kid. So he was playing having a great time, and it was his first at bat. He came up to bat, and he was so little, he got walked to first base. Um, the next kid hit a triple, and Brian tore around the bases and got waved home, and he crossed home plate, and we were all standing up and cheering. He was the happiest little boy you ever saw. His eyes were shining. He gave, looked over at me and gave me a thumbs up, trotted to the dugout, giving everybody high fives. And then he sat down, and then he died. He had an arrhythmia. And uh, so the kid said, uh, yo, Brian, you know, quit kidding around because he fell over. And he was joking around so much. But um, then the coach brought him out, and then the crowd fell silent. And I ran over to resuscitate him. And I turned off all of my emotions. And uh, uh, I thought to myself, he must have had an arrhythmia. We should be able to get him back. The rescue squad was right across the street. They showed up within a minute or two, and uh, I really did all the right things. But when I was resuscitating him, somehow I knew, I looked down at his little blue face, and somehow I knew that he wasn't coming back. I just, you know, that it was gone. So we brought him to the hospital. I resuscitated him along the way, and then uh, they'd radioed ahead. There was a team waiting for us, and we whisked him inside, and I helped put him breathing tube on into his windpipe. And then I went out to, uh, in the hallway and just collapsed, you know, into a chair and started crying because I knew, uh, you know, I knew that he wasn't coming back. So um, that was his death. But that wasn't the end because all of these other things started happening that also weren't in my belief system. But I was in shock, of course, and uh, it took me, you know, years to, to integrate all of these new experiences into, uh, into you know, uh, a way I could put it together. Yeah, yeah. It's just a confluence of, of tragedy and, and, and the paranormal and the strange, you know. It's one thing to lose a child, but then it's another to go through this entire experience sort of uh, where he had predicted it, you know. And this isn't just like something that he had said offhandedly. This sounds like this had been going on for months uh, leading up to his death. Was he, did he express any, like, frustration that people didn't seem to believe what he was saying? No, he didn't. He didn't. But, uh, you know, when I think what it must have been like for him, the only one, 
uh, in a in a world of adults that just that didn't understand, you know, the things that he was wrestling with. Yeah. And uh, you know, how much I would have loved to have been able to go back, you know, and supported him, you know, help him uh, understand, validate, you know, his 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 knowledge. Yeah. It must have been very frustrating for him, but uh, but no, he didn't express that. And as a matter of fact, at the end, uh, the last few weeks, he was, you know, very joyful. I mean, extremely joyful. And that was one of the, you know, there were the paranormal things that happened. And then, but there was also these real paradoxes that I had. And one was, um, this is the worst thing that could have possibly happened to me. You know, Brian was my hope for the future. He was my best friend. He could write poetry, which I couldn't do. And, um, you know, he was just, just like, you know, my delight. And the worst thing that could happen, you know, is losing a child and losing a gifted child. But, uh, so the very worst thing that could have possibly happened, happened. Um, and I was really sad, as we all were. But Brian, who understood more than we did, was joyful. You know, his last moments were absolute pure joy. And uh, so how how could he, who knew more than I did, be joyful when I'm, you know, really sad? Yeah. And then the other thing is, how do you grieve a loss that clearly was supposed to happen? Because when you look back, I mean, there were other things going on, too. That week, he died on a Saturday, and then I had taken the next week off as a vacation to spend with my family. But that's the first time in my life I'd ever done that. And uh, there were all of these things that were just, that were orchestrated just so beautifully by an intelligence far greater than mine. And so, you know, how can you be, how can you grieve when clearly that was supposed to happen? And uh, so these were questions that kind of haunted me uh, over the next several years as I tried to, you know, and my belief system, of course, was totally destroyed. Yeah. And uh, so... I was kind of grieving became my pathway. I had this huge emptiness and this great love for this child who obviously um, he was a very he was a performer, an entertainer, and it was a very public thing that his death and his his premonition was very public. A lot of people knew it. And uh, so this was obviously supposed to teach us something. Now what? Yeah, you know, I'm still working on. It. But clearly uh, Brian had had made a great sacrifice, so yeah. That we could, you know, learn that there really is magic in the world. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. And and the book is about you know your journey after after Brian's death. But you said like a lot of other people knew about his premonition. What was the sort of reaction from you know the other people that knew? Because you know we as we'll get into here in our conversation and in the book, uh, we, we you, you went on quite a journey. But what were some of the other journeys or reactions from other people? Well, not a lot of people like to talk about that. And, you know, of course, when all of the people came to our house and they saw the sign and they saw the parents' poll that he left, so there were you know, at least 100 people that saw the sign. And uh, um, most people didn't talk about it. Um, and you know, if I, I mean, these things I couldn't understand. I was in shock. And I'd talk about them. But people often, most of the time, didn't want to hear about it. 
you know, this here my child, this wonderful thing happened. And this and 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 my child showed me that there's something more going on than what we have been taught is true with our reality. And but people didn't want to hear about it. And then uh the death made the wire services because it's unusual if a child dies playing little league, I guess. And it made uh, national radio and TV and newspapers. And the reporters would call. And I would tell them, uh, yes, he died. And he told us that he was going to die months before. And he gave us a going away present. He gave himself a going away party, left us notes saying goodbye, and, uh, you know, gave us goodbye presents. And um, there was never any any attempt to determine if that was true or not. I figured if there's anything that could be proven, this would be it. And uh, no follow-up questions. They would just change the subject or their voice would trail off and they'd say thank you and hang up. And so nobody would tell the story except for one national, very prominent radio program. And it was a radio broadcaster that seemed to have a spiritual, a strong spiritual side. So I thought he'd do a good job because he said he wanted to tell the story. Yeah. And then when I listened to this, to what he said, um, we were, you know, we were shocked because he didn't tell the story. He changed it. He said, knowing that Brian was dying of terminal heart disease, he got up off his deathbed and said, you know, he wanted to score a run more than anything. Went to play baseball with his team, swung the bat, <clears throat> huffed and puffed around the bases and collapsed across home plate and died. So this guy really, that's not even, that's not even remotely accurate to what happened. No, and I, and I thought, you know, why did he lie? You know, I mean, why would he defile my son's experience? And the truth story was so much better. I mean, why would he lie? It was a great disservice. And so um, my wife and I became very leery of the media Yeah. after that. She, you know, I mean, I always thought that people would learn, should, you know, would want to learn from the story. And over, you know, that happened about 18 years ago now. Oh, it took wow. me 15 years to be able to write the story. Nobody else would write the story. And it fell to me, and kind of the backstory of the book is that nobody was a worse writer than I was. <laughs> uh, when I was in high school, if you had to write a poem... I struggle and I couldn't do it. My parents had helped me with it. Anything that involved, I could write technical stuff. Like I, I wrote articles for, for medical journals. Yeah. But anything involving emotion or feelings or subtle meaning or anything like that, I just could not do it. And so I look at some of the first thing I, I tried to write and they were terrible. But <clears throat> nobody else would do it. And the story just had to be told. And it had to be told well. You know, how do you honor your son's life by a really, you know, poorly written story? <laughs> so I just kept trying and trying and asking for help. And it turns out that finally the final thing that happened was when my mother died, which is I mentioned in the book. And um, that was kind of uh, the book I would write a little bit and then it would get stuck, which is what happens in grief. We get often get stuck in our grief. Yeah. In order for it to be a, you know, a true um, celebration of Brian's life, you couldn't read it and get stuck. You had to go through the darkness and come out better than you were when you started. The book had to, you know, it, it, the book could not be stuck 
which is where it was uh, for many years. So when I finished it, um, uh, people tell me it's well-written and it's won several awards. So um, that's kind of a minor miracle is that Brian really helped me become a writer. Well, what I thought was interesting too uh, in the book is you talk about, and this is probably sort of where you're going uh, with this with this next part here, is uh, that you talk about attending uh, the grief group, I guess you could say, uh, support group, uh, the Compassionate Friends, and that when you shared Brian's story, it turns out that this isn't really as, I wouldn't say it's, you know, commonplace or anything like that, but uh, you say that there were parents there and eight had children that had passed away, and four of the children had premonitions concerning their accidental deaths, which is really pretty stunning. I mean, that's a that's a very high percentage uh, of just the small group of people that, that you were talking to at the support group. So, I mean, this, this story, Brian's story, really, I think, may be playing out much more than we think. Um, and as you said, people don't want to acknowledge it, so you don't hear about it as much. Right. What I discovered was it took me a, a year after Brian's death before I could, uh, there's a, a support group for parents that have, uh, that have had children die called the Compassionate Friends. And uh, at the emergency room where Brian died, they gave us the brochure. And it was about a year before I could go. And then um, it was another year before I could talk and, and share Brian's story. So there were probably about 20 people in the room. And uh, I told about a five-minute version of Brian's story. And then, to my amazement, uh, the other parents started chiming in with their stories. So at this point, I'd been going for two years, and there was a lot of sharing of dreams and experiences and stuff like that. Nobody ever talked about any of these paranormal things. But, as you mentioned, um, of the eight children that were living with their parents when they died, four of the kids had clear knowledge, you know, that would be admissible in evidence uh, in court, that they they were aware of the fact they were going to die and were dealing with it or helping their parents deal with it. For example, um, a 12-year-old boy who died in a uh, automobile accident, the night before he died, wrote a list of all his life accomplishments and came down and showed them to his mom. And then he talked about what he wanted to accomplish in the future. And then there was a little 4-year-old girl and she sounded uh, a lot like Brian to me. Uh, her mom said she was extremely uh, joyful and gifted. And uh, she said every day, you know what, I love you with a mad passion. Imagine this from a four-year-old <laughs> to her, uh, her parents. And artistic. And uh, this little girl died at the daycare center. And she was going down a slide. And a ribbon caught around her neck and strangled her. Well, this mother brought in the picture uh, the, the next time, uh, but she told us the story of uh, the picture that this little girl had drawn a half an hour before she died, and it shows her hanging from the neck in dark colors, obviously dead, on one side of the picture. And on the other side of the picture is her in bright colors putting on a yellow halo with an angel in the sky dropping more halos down to her. And the mother said, this little girl... Um, always said that she didn't want to go up and go to school like the other children. She, uh, but she was, you know, very joyful and, and always filled our loves, you know, our life with love and joy. And uh, but she, she always knew that she wasn't going to, uh, you know, 
grow up. And then when I tell the story to people that have lost somebody who's very close to them, and it's usually the more the love and the closer the bond, the more you hear these stories. Yeah. So young children are where you hear them. And you hear these stories about 50% of the time. When the parents, there's kind of a big uh, cultural denial. And people don't get the idea that they can talk about these things. That's one reason I created my website, beyondreason.info, was so that parents would have a place to go to share these stories. And then when you see that these things are really common, and you see the same stories over and over again, then you realize, yes, you know, this this really is, it's real and I can talk about it. And it's very healing to know that there really is more going on and that there's, a, you know, the child who's trying to help them you know, understand. So these things happen all the time, but and now people know they can tell me about them. So I hear them all the time. <laughs> uh, somebody will go, you know, I'll, I'll go to to a funeral or something like that, or talk to somebody, and uh, they've lost their wife or something like that. Oh, you know, I'm starting to hear that. Anything, you know, anything interesting, unusual that happened afterwards? Sometimes I'll say it, sometimes I won't. And I've, I've heard so many stories. I mean, just like last week, I was out having lunch with my uh, minister. And uh, while we were eating, two elderly women came by and said hi. And the minister said, uh, oh, uh, that woman that said hello, her um, husband passed away a few months ago. And they were best friends with their next-door neighbor. That was the other woman. And uh, the uh, husband who died, his best friend was next door and working in the garden, and heard the deceased person's voice. He didn't know he was dead. Huh. And was in the garden, and uh, and he heard the words very clearly, tell Irene, I love her, not to worry about me. Oh, wow. And so he found out, like, a couple hours later that this fellow, you know, had just died at the point that he, that he heard those. Weird. And so, I mean, if people would just share their stories, I mean, this stuff that's considered to be paranormal, it's normal. It really is. And uh, not only that, but it's uh, like 100 years ago, people could talk about this more. There was no real cultural denial going on, not as much. And so when you hear these stories all the time, you know that there's more going on than just the materialistic world. And the avenues for healing are much greater. But um, anyhow, the culture we're in right now, it's very difficult for people to share these stories. But they're not abnormal. They're not uh, paranormal. They really aren't normal. Indeed, they're just uh, marginalized and, and, as you said, sort of culturally silenced. You're listening to Banal of America Audio. What advice, I guess, do you have? You've said like, a couple times here that you, know, that you wish you could go back and, and do things differently. Like, what, what advice would you have for someone, a parent, whose child comes to them and, and like Brian did and, and says, you know, I'm going to die? Like, he, he at least had some time there you know, before it happened. Some of these other stories, you know, you mentioned that sounds like these kids maybe only knew maybe a day or two ahead of time. But, you know, overall, in general, you know, what kind of advice would you give to a parent who runs into that kind of experience? Well, as I've come to appreciate, is that children know far more than, than what our culture tells us. I was very fortunate to have several teachers that showed up in my life after Brian died. They were some of the best people on the planet to help me learn about magical children like Brian. And one of them was Joseph Chilton Pierce, who wrote the book Magical Child, and uh, was a groundbreaking bestseller. And what Joe uh, wrote about and talks about, 
know, he travels all around the world at these cutting edge conferences on child spirituality, child development. He meets all these avatars, you know, these children that, that are extremely gifted and very knowledgeable. And so probably the best person on the entire planet to help me understand this became my mentor for several years. And so now I know the children are kind of in this dream world. Yeah. And they don't know space and time like we do, like adults. But they know more about the timeless truths than we do. And I put some examples in my book that I got to see. But when a child tells you something, if it rings true, then, uh, you know, don't deny who they are and don't deny their knowledge. They really do know more than you do about many things. So I would just ask them, uh, how do you know you're going to die? Or, you know, why do you, you know, what makes you think that? Um, what would it mean? You know, where would you go? I mean, you can really learn something yeah. from this child. And uh, But the only thing that I would say not to do is to deny this child's knowledge or to deny, you know, this child uh, uh, whatever they're presenting to you. So, and they talk in, in metaphors and dreams and things like that. So I I now know that uh, the children, as they, when they're really little, um, uh, the example I give was um, we had another son, Matt, after Brian died. Mm -hmm. And he was like, um, he was uh, four and a half, I think. And, no, he was like four. And I was filling out an application for him to go to um, preschool, and it needed his weight. So I told him, I said, uh, Matthew, go into the bathroom, jump on the scale, and weigh yourself. Tell me how much you weigh. And he came back, and uh, he said a three and a zero, and then because uh, he couldn't count to 30. Yeah. And then a couple hours later, I was uh, filling out an insurance physical, and I wrote down my weight. He was looking over my shoulder. And I filled out my weight as 180. And he said, oh, six Matthews. <laughs> and, uh, but it was years before he could do multiplication and division. And then uh, about the same time, I was doing a, an I, taking an IQ test that I saw in a magazine. And uh, there was one question. It was by far the hardest and required an IQ you know, in the genius area of above 150. And I couldn't figure it out, even after looking at the answer. It was a very complicated progression of colors and, and shapes. Yeah. And you were supposed to guess what the next one was. And there were six six possible answers. So Matt was walking by, and I said, Matt, uh, I can't figure this out. Can you uh, can you look at this? Tell me what the correct answer is. And he glanced over it and said, you know, matter-of-factly, B, which was the correct answer. And I said, well, how do you know that? He says, uh, I don't know. <laughs> and then I talk about some other other things, but basically, whenever I'm stuck, like Matt and I were over in, uh, I think he was probably, he was probably about nine or ten, and we were over in France, and we were going to a wedding, and I had forgotten the directions, so we were out driving in the French countryside in a, in a totally foreign place, and I was lost. You know, I tried all the logical things I knew to find this little church in this little scenic little village in the middle of nowhere. So I, I said, uh, okay, Matt, well, I, <clears throat> I'm lost. I don't know what to do. Can you close your eyes and give me some idea of where I should go? So he closed his eyes and said, second turn on the left. <laughs> so, and that's where I was. So we took second turn on the left, followed around, and it took us right there to this little uh, village. And that's right where everybody was waiting for us. <laughs> so, um, in other words... 
more going on than we realize. And uh, if you ask kids, they can really help you out. Yeah, that's the unfortunate part, too, because uh, having been in the paranormal for so long, it's, it, it does seem like children have an amazing array of abilities that we just don't acknowledge or we just or society just refuses to to really process we make them give it up exactly i mean we tell them in a million ways that uh, that it's not acceptable for them to know these things as they grow up and so you know they're smart so they'll give them up to to fit in and uh you know if they get their parents love they'll do whatever their parents are telling them to do it's very, yeah, you wonder what kind of world we'd be living in if we just li- listened to the kids, you know. It, it would be a much better world, I think. So it's, it's you know, you wonder how how all this sort of happened in a way. But as you said, well, hundreds of years ago, things were a little bit different. But even then, I don't think uh, children are supposed to be seen and not heard, right? Isn't that the old expression? Right. Well, I'm not saying things were wonderful, but I'm saying it was more. But 100 years ago, there was much, much more in the literature, you know. You, yeah. In, in the media of the day about paranormal things than there is now. Now, there are all these, these uh, skeptics for hire that if you, you know, one thing, I've learned a lot about paranormal stuff. Mm-hmm. I experienced a lot of it. And uh, one of the big cons is that there's no good research showing paranormal phenomena. That is, you know, that is one of the biggest, uh, most ridiculous things I've seen. I mean, in medicine, uh, the reason everybody takes aspirin to prevent heart attack is because it creates, you know, if you have one heart attack and if you take aspirin, it's less than 1% uh, of a difference, a decrease, yeah. which is not enough to see. You need statistics to tell you that. And for that tiny little benefit, you have a very common incidence of, uh, you know, stomach bleeding, uh, which can really be very serious. Probably most of us know people that have, that when we're hospitalized because of stomach bleeding from taking aspirin. So, you know, we're taking all this stuff and based on the science. Well, uh, if you take people in either remote viewing uh, experiments or um, uh, Rupert Sheldrake's got one where you have, like, four friends that call you on your cell phone and uh, they call you at a certain time and you guess who it is. And um, somebody who has absolutely no paranormal uh, talent or experience, we'll get it right. If it's four people, it should be right by chance, 25%, and they'll get it right 35%, and that's you now reproducible over tens of thousands. I mean, you know. And, yeah. And paranormal uh, researchers have been so uh, criticized so long that the studies are flawless at this point, and even then they still won't get published. And then if you get somebody who's really good that has a lot of experience, they're right 50% of the time. Like Joe McMonigle. Yeah, like like Joe, and but okay. Well, if there's four pictures and uh, you know in another room, and one's in a sealed envelope that he's supposed to view, he'll be right about fifty percent of the time. But twenty five percent of the time, one out of four, he will draw that picture. I mean, where you could you know lay one on top of, lay it on top of it. Yeah, which is so far beyond chance that I mean, how anybody could do that? Now you have all these skeptics that say, well, there's never been anything. Has Joe told you about his experience with The Amazing Randy? No, no. Okay, so The Amazing Randy. You had all these people that are well-funded uh, to to uh, disprove paranormal reality. Yeah. And one is The Amazing Randy. He's got this million-dollar thing. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Anybody who can show a paranormal thing, I'll give him a million bucks. Well, so Joe McMonagle sends in his research studies. So he's been studied for like 30 years. He's got He's the most studied psychic in the world. And his, it's bomb-proof. I mean, there's no point to any more experiments. 
they've been done, the numbers are, and you can't make the design any better. And he's uh, he's right 50% of the time and, and all that, and the amazing Randy won't touch it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and all of these, you know, so I I really got to see the fact that, uh, that this is a, you know, this is a conscious attempt to prevent people from knowing that there's magic in the world. But anyhow, the, the, the research out there is bomb-proof. Well, as someone who, you know, hadn't really given this much thought until all this happened to him, what do you, what do you attribute that conscious effort to? Why do you think they don't want us to, to consider that there's magic in the world? That's great. Well, people, have, you know, people, the question before that is, uh, well, gee, you know, why, didn't the, why do you think the media wouldn't tell the story? And so what I answer to that, which is the prelude to this, is the softball answer is uh, they were uncomfortable or uh, they didn't want to, one thing or another. It's, yeah. it's, it's either ignorance or it's um, uh, fear, okay? Mm-hmm. And then that's the softball answer. Um, ignorance or, you know, or, um, or they're stupid or, you know, whatever it is. Same thing with politicians. Why don't they balance the budget? Well, they're ignorant or they're stupid. Well, they're, they're neither. You know, these guys are all lawyers. The average IQ for somebody in law school is 125. And they're, they're much more experienced than we do. So it's not ignorance and it's not stupidity. So what is it? All right. Um, what's left? Well, those are the softball answers and the other answers are hardball. It's conscious. And anytime you know that there's fear anywhere, then you know that there's consciousness behind that somewhere along. But there's a quote from the Tao Te Ching that I like, and it says, uh, the sage in ruling hollows their hearts, stuffs their stomachs, weakens their wills, always causing the people to be without knowledge. Thus, his rule is universal. I mean, doesn't that really describe our times right now? This uh, stuffed stomachs, we have obesity, people are so spiritually hollow right now and hungry. And uh, their wills are very weak from watching all this TV, you know, and uh, people are very ignorant. All yeah. of these things we're talking about are consciously kept out of the media. So it's really because that's how you create a docile uh, population. I think you're on the right track there for sure. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's it's surprising to hear someone of your stature as a, you know, in the medical community and, and you know, having done so much to, to sort of come to that conclusion. What was the reaction of your colleagues and stuff? Because I mean, they're they're doctors and scientists, and 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 so you know, I I imagine that as you said earlier, they're afraid of death. You know, I can only imagine that they're sort of uneasy with the whole idea of the paranormal. Well, I was very curious when I was working on this. I knew that no matter what, I was going to tell the story. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just you know, this is my son's life, and uh, I I really feel like it needs an audience. He was a very public child and died publicly, and I thought that, uh, you know, I don't care what happens, I'm telling the story. Yeah. Okay, so then but I was curious as to what would happen, because when I started writing this 18 years ago, nobody would talk about this stuff. There was no media for this. Now, uh, there is. There's you, and, you know, even mainstream media is being forced by the alternative media to talk about this a little bit, mm-hmm. just to be in competition. Anyhow, so I was in academics, and uh, that I still don't think would have worked. I don't think that uh, that uh, that would have been accepted. And then I was at a community hospital, but um, I left there 
it was like a perfect job for a while. It's like the universe has fired me from every job I've been in. <laughs> First, it's like you know, it's a perfect job. Everything is, you know, opens up for me. And then when it's time for me to leave, uh, all of a sudden everything goes wrong, and uh, it's time for me to leave. You know, so I left academics, went into private practice. That was great. And then it was time for me to finish the book. So everything in private practice really got got to be very difficult. It kind of turned uh, very quickly. And so I left there and I went to work at a, a little surgery center, uh, which gave me time to write the book. And uh, also, they're very religious there, the people that I work with. And so I was really curious. The book came out. And here I'm working with these people, and I'm really curious what they would think about that. Do they think I'm crazy or dishonest or something like that? So I ended up at this small, very close-knit, very religious group of people that are very um, uh, very appreciative of what I've written. And it's really funny how these things work out. I don't think it would have worked out elsewhere, but I think it's worked out where I am right now. Well, that's great. Yeah, yeah. Because you always worry about that sort of thing, too, the backlash of, you know, you may have tons of readers and lots of website visitors and stuff like that, but it's the everyday people in your life that, you know, you could end up losing in the process of, of sort of uh, opening up about this sort of story. Now, do you you've, – you've told Brian's story, I'm sure, countless times. Like, how does that feel to have to recount that story – so many times, I think you said it was like 18 years ago. I'm sure you've told it hundreds of times. Like, how does that, does it ever weigh on you? You're ever like, oh, do I have to do this again, you know? Or or are you just so happy to have had this awakening because of all this that, you know, it's joyful to share the story? No, uh, Tim, it has never gotten old. I've gotten better at telling the story. And uh, there are parts that I wrote that, you know, I was crying when I was writing them. And that, uh, you know, that I, I, I can't. You know, I couldn't read, but now I'm getting to the point where I can actually read them or, or without without crying. And so I'm a little bit better at telling the story. But, no, I'm, I'm very glad because um, in a way this is a continuation of Brian's life is the fact that we're talking about this and that there's a lot. It goes and goes. We can talk and we could talk for, you know, for days about all the things I learned and all the things that are that are uh, uh, available to be learned from Ryan, but uh, but uh, no, I'm very happy because uh, I you know I love him very much, and uh, Ryan is not dead. His body died, but uh, his the effect that he's had on us, uh, in the family, and his, the world is continuing. It's like the ripples are getting larger. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was on coast to coast, um, got a phone call from a, a movie producer. And uh, he thought that that this would be a really good story to help wake up a new generation that's been told that there's no magic, you know. Yeah. Kids have been told there's no Santa Claus. That's like one of the big spiritual crises that we uh, that we you know manifest on, uh, on these kids. And he, you know, he says, um, you know, the most hard-hearted businessman would never cry at, uh, you know, uh, if anything happened in their family. We'll go into a dark movie theater for 90 minutes and cry, you know, if it's a good movie. And um, so uh, right now it, it looks like, um, and it keeps leading me in all these new directions. Like, uh, you know, I wrote the book, which was for me was a huge stretch. And then uh, 
had to write a movie treatment, a film treatment, which is a whole new medium. I mean, people go and dedicate their lives to writing for the screen. And here I am, a physician, an amateur writer, who now has to go and learn what a, you know, a treatment is. Yeah. And so uh, it's just like a continuing involvement of uh, evolution of uh, what I'm supposed to be doing. It just keeps leading me to one place or another. So when I'm talking to you, I, uh, I'm sure that something, you know, different will come out of it. So for me, it's a living thing. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. It's like a process. Right. Now, in the book, you sort of talk about how, you know, your journey was different from your wife's response and reaction sort of uh, of the fallout to, to Brian's death and how you couldn't talk really about what you were experiencing as far as sort of like opening up to the paranormal elements of the world uh, until much later on. It sounds like she, you had a mutual friend and, and – um, and and she sort of like opened opened your wife up to to the spirituality of of this paranormal, if you will, for lack of a better term. I guess talk a little bit about that and and sort of how your wife reacted to to your journey. Right, that's a, a very big part of the grieving process. Is the fact that everybody grieves differently, <clears throat> they grieve at different ways and, and at different rates. And uh, grief is is like the ultimate spiritual path. It's like everybody. The Buddhist traditions, Eastern traditions talk about nothingness or emptiness. And, of course, that's what grief is. It's so big, it's like you're in it. Mm -hmm. I mean, everything we do involves, every action we take involves the fact that we're missing something. So you're interviewing me because you need, you know, stories and guests. Okay, and I need an audience. That's why I'm talking to you. Plus, I need some new questions to get me thinking about some new things. Just the smallest thing, taking a drink of water. It's because you're missing, you know, you need water. So when you just magnify that emptiness to the point where it is like got your complete attention, then uh, we call that grief. And part of us is missing. There's an emptiness, okay, which is a big creative field. And then the love for the person or the thing that we are, are grieving. And so that became my path. Became my path. Like, so you have a child, and as much as you love that child, I can tell you from my own experiences that when I loved Brian, I thought it was a very good parent. But after he died, all of these conditional things, you know, we were worried they're not brushing their teeth, or they're not picking up the room, or they're not doing well at school, all these little conditional things that tie you up go away. And then you're left with this unconditional love that you had for your child, much deeper and bigger than anything I'd ever experienced. And I just kept following that. And uh, I had some incredible spiritual awakenings. Now, that is really tough on, a, on any relationship. When one person uh, has a spiritual awakening and the other person doesn't. Yeah. As a matter of fact, most, you know, there's lots of things that are really tough on a marriage. The death of a child, having a handicapped kid, we've had both of those. And then... Uh, uh, the other one that's probably just as big is having one person having uh, spiritual conversion. So hang in there and, uh, you know, trust reality. And then uh, this woman showed up in uh, town and became Catherine's best friend and introduced her to another spiritual center. I ended up going, a uh, series of coincidences took me to uh, the Monroe Institute, Bob Monroe, who wrote... Uh, you know, the first books in the Western literature about out-of-body out of experiences. Mm -hmm. 
that was 30 minutes south of where we live, and 30 minutes north is uh, what's the Seven Oaks um, Passport Center. And so Catherine went there for many years. And then after a while, we could talk about these things. And, uh, and so, uh, once again, <laughs> there's always, you know, there's always something <laughs> that's not working, but, um, that we can talk about. But basically, what happened was, I had this huge emptiness, and I just knew, you know, I was just hungry to know what had happened. Uh, and all of these different coincidences just showed up. Now, I live in Charlottesville, Virginia, and I had no idea when I moved here. I came here to teach the uh, medical school, and I had no idea that, uh, that Charlottesville is like this big center for cult, you know, for consciousness um, from the days of Jefferson Madison Monroe, who crafted the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, which was, and still is, the most advanced consciousness, you know, government. Uh, embodied in, in a government document, uh, the idea that uh, there is a God, that we get uh, our rights from God, and liberty, and, uh, and the pursuit of happiness, and freedom. And all of these things are of paramount importance. And man's greed is, you know, uh, they tried their best to try and um, circumvent that, turn it against itself to uh, prevent, you know, uh, tyranny. Yeah, which is what we're seeing right now. Mm -hmm. So um, back from then, Charlottesville somehow has attracted these people. The very first books on uh, uh, near-death experiences, Raymond Mooney, that was from here, George Ritchie, and uh, out-of-body experiences was from here, and reincarnation, Ian Stevenson, the first books documenting over in India, children, you know, that said, oh, I remember I was in another life. I was in the village next door. Or you know, 100 miles down the road. Yeah, and he would document that the fact that there were you know obviously obviously there was something to it, which now with YouTube you can see that. You don't have to go to this library and dust off this book. You can go on YouTube. I don't know if you've seen that one about I think that six-year-old boy that uh, was a World War II pilot. I think I've heard of that. Yeah, yeah. Well, you see it, and basically he was having all these nightmares about crashing planes and stuff like that, and then. Uh, Somehow he said enough that they figured out that he was uh, talking about uh, World War II aircraft carrier. And he went to this, uh, you know, I mean, there's the parents and the kid. And they took this kid to this uh, reunion of this uh, flight squadron. I guess they were dive bombers or something like that off this carrier. And uh, there's these old men and this six-year-old boy. And he, the six-year-old boy recognized them. And they started were sharing, you know, swapping stories, <laughs> war stories. I mean, that's on YouTube now. So, I mean, it's hard to suppress this stuff by the media. So, anyhow, here, and then Joe Pierce was here, and Elizabeth Kubler-Ross was here. I mean, the very best people in the entire world just showed up and right in my own backyard where I went I was ready to learn from them. And so, basically, that's what I did. Now, you say in the book, too, that uh, Brian's death, and I think you said this, this sort of uh, was shared by the people in, in the Compassionate Friends group, too, was that the loss of a child seems to take away your fear of death, which I thought was interesting. Is that because, like, you know, there, you have something to look forward to, you know, for lack of a better term? Like, there's someone waiting for you that you love so much on the other side? Is that kind of where, where that fear of death comes from? Well, I mean, it's a true observation, is that no matter who, no matter what walk of life, whatever, no matter what kind of uh, spiritual background, agnostic or uh, atheist, uh, we just, just naturally, we're no longer afraid of death. So that's just, that was just the reality, you know, the, the observation 
other reality. You know, the book that I wrote was called Beyond Reason, and that's because uh, a lot of these things, you know, reason, you know, they talk about thinking out of the box. Well, thinking is the box, as I've discovered. And that's why in the Eastern religions, you know, thinking is like, you know, you have to go beyond thought, so that's why you get these koans to get the mind to tie itself up so you can, you know, move on. That's what Joe McMonagall does when he, to increase his accuracy in remote viewing, is that he gives his mind some sort of a task so it ties itself up so he can be in touch with, you know, just the pure experience of the uh, of the unknown and uh, the emotions, whatever you want to call. But we all sensed that, you know, when our children died, something died, but something didn't. And this thing that didn't die is really important. Uh, it's like really pure, and uh, it's like a beacon. And so we kind of want to follow that beacon, and it really goes through death. And death, of course, is not an end. It's a transition. And, uh, you know, being dead and being alive are just different ways of being. You don't intellectually know that, but you do feel it. Yeah. You know, when you, if you've had no background in the paranormal or anything like that, it's just something you just feel. And when somebody is grieving... The big mistake that people make is they try and close it or end it. And they'll, you know, uh, uh, at least he died young, you know, or I mean, uh, or I mean, at least, uh, at least he died quickly, you know, or something like that. Yeah. But grieving people don't want the don't want the grief to go away. They sense it's really important, and so uh, they want support, they want connection, but uh, they don't want you to cover it up or cement it over or anything like that. You know, it's. One of the great spiritual paths that is underrated. And we're not taught how to use it as a spiritual path. No, that's true. That's true. Well, what you said about sort of uh, cementing over it is absolutely true. It's, it's people, seems like, because I, I lost a parent, I uh, lost my father like four years ago. I, you know, experienced sort of what, you know, obviously nowhere near the, the, the degree of what you went through. But it's, you know, you sort of uh, can, I can empathize in a sense with the way people sort of react. You know, and that I always found it sort of troubling, too, that when someone dies, you're surrounded by loved ones and everything and, and, and family and friends and stuff. But eventually you're kind of left alone to pick up the pieces yourself. And, and, and you know, they, they move on with their lives faster than you do, in a sense. Right. Yeah, for them, they've done everything. After a couple of weeks, they, you know, uh, they'll bring you casserole dishes and spend time with you and things like that. And then after a while, you know, it's time for them to move on. They've done everything they can. And, uh, it, I mean, after a couple of weeks, you're just coming out of shock. I mean, this goes on for you know, for years. It usually takes a couple of years before you get over the um, the real trauma of it and uh, start putting things back together again. So uh, it's you're on, you're on a different time course, and uh, it's, a, it's a very important path. And that's why support groups are good, because then you go someplace where everybody really is and on these long-term this long-term journey, yeah, and uh, can compare notes and dreams. It turns out a lot of things that that uh, you're going through, they've gone through exactly the same thing. And you have a dream, and they say yes. You know, a lot of people chime in. I had that dream too. Yeah, it makes you feel like you're not alone anymore, which is critical. Well, right, and it's also well, the two um, biggest problems for grief or any kind of trauma are isolation and helplessness. And then that's when you get stuck. And then, like, uh, after Brian died for the next week, I kept reliving the uh, the resuscitation, except that 
instead of shutting off my emotions, I was uh, very aware of the fact my helplessness, and I, you know, that I couldn't bring it back, and I cry out for help and things like that. So the pain, I was reliving the pain that I had denied at the uh, at the actual resuscitation. And uh, it turns out that, uh, you know, if you get stuck at that stage, that's called a, a pathological grief reaction. And that'd be like flashbacks for Gulf War, you know, veterans, things like that. Yeah. Post-traumatic stress, you get, well, you're stuck. And the risk factors are isolation and helplessness. So basically, the best thing you can do is, is uh, be with somebody and be helpful and allow the person to be helpful to themselves. And then that's how you get to move through it. And the, this process will help you. The things that come out of your emptiness are really incredible. That's one thing I hope people get out of, you know, reading my book, is these things show up if you're if you're open to them. Yeah. And uh, you don't have to do a whole lot. The universe will do it for you, you know, as long as you're in touch with your pain and your love. Those are the two essential things you need to heal. You talked here a little bit in this conversation about how, you know, the... I guess you could say, for lack of a better term, the consciousness of, of the world is sort of waking up to this idea of the power of magic that, that children seem to have. Do you foresee a time that, you know, maybe people's attitudes will change and, and, and we'll get a better understanding of all this? Or do you think they're going to continue to sort of be kept in the dark? That's a great question. Now, there are lots of different ways to look at things. It depends on how you look at the universe. If you know your quantum physics, you know that everything that can exist does exist. It's just a question of what we allow, the probability of it coming into our awareness. So now you could say, well, why are we in this world here with our limited awareness? And uh, one answer would be that it's very dramatic. That um, By having such uh, a worldview as we do, we have wars and we have uh, uh, all kinds of injustice and things like that, which is very entertaining. If you were writing, as I was writing a uh, you know a movie treatment of, of a book, in order to keep hold people's interest in this world, you really need to create a lot of it. Um, you have to have pain, <laughs> you have to have conflict, and you have to have all these terrible things happening. And then people will watch it. Yeah. If, if you make everything very happy and harmonic, and uh, joyful, like if we were all in heaven, nobody would tune in. <laughs> so uh, we're we're tuned into this reality right now. When people quit going to football games and uh, and you know just going peace marches by sixty thousand people every Saturday, then uh, it'll be a different world. It'll be waking up. You won't need these stories like Brian and me talking about. Yeah. But uh, right now, yes. Uh, for one thing, you have to have conflict for there to be drama and interest, but you also have to have evolution change. And so Brian is a force of change here. So people are definitely waking up. You know, I couldn't tell the story 20, uh, 18, 18 years ago, but I can tell it now. And um, uh, the things that I used to talk about it, it's in the vocabulary more than it was 18 years ago. Yeah. So we're definitely seeing some changes going on. Now, exactly the end of Star Wars, the very first Star Wars, mm -hmm. okay, if it were reasonable that Luke would take out the Death Star, we wouldn't be very interested. It wouldn't be much of an ending. It has to seem hopeless, okay? When you look at what's going on in the world right now, who has control of the power? It's hopeless. Reasonably, by logic, there's no way, okay? Just like there's no way that Luke could take
take out the Death Star. As a matter of fact, he turned off his computer because that was the logical system that was blocking it <laughs> from happening. So right now we're coming to another uh, freaking <laughs> uh, epic battle between good and evil. And uh, it's going to be very dramatic. And the forces of good and the forces of evil have uh, got more uh, tools than they had the last time it came around in World War II. And uh, if it looked like it was going to be easy, it wouldn't be dramatic. Yeah. So all I can say is we're doing our little part here to try and allow people just a little taste of magic so when things happen, um, they can turn off their computer, their logical reasoning, and still have hope. Indeed. That's a great uh, point to uh, sort of wrap things up here. What's next for you? You've sort of uh, alluded to this movie that you're working on. You wrote the treatment for it. Any thoughts on Now, you said it took you a while 15 years to write the book, so are you working on a, a sequel, or or uh, hopefully the pace has picked up a little bit? Are you, are you working on any additional uh, books or or other projects beyond the uh, the movie here? Mm -hmm. There's two books that want to be written, and, um, you know, I'm pretty busy. I still have a practice, and I still have teenage son, especially his daughter, and a lot of other things going on. So it's not like, you know, and writing doesn't, still doesn't come easily for me. But I've got two other things that really want to be written. But um, it turns out that this uh, the movie project right now is, seems to be the what's taking over right now. So yes, I have some continuations of things that uh, more things I've learned from from Brian, my experience with Brian, that I think would be helpful to other people. But uh, I haven't started writing that. But I'm looking. I'm really hungry to do that. I need some I need to carve out some space. So I think hopefully we'll get this movie thing done, and then I can uh, I can start working on those. And then you never know. I mean, you know, one thing leads to another. Chances are I'll be doing something uh, in another month or two that I absolutely could not imagine. Oh, okay. I thought you were, I thought you were like, teasing us with something. <laughs> that you had something in the works in another month that we should keep an eye out for. I see what well, you're saying. Well, I'm teasing, you know, teasing myself. I mean, the universe keeps coming up with all these things. So. Indeed, yes. Uh, just when you think you've got it figured out, <laughs> you really find out that you don't. <laughs> that Yes, that's life for you, isn't it? Um, yeah. and, and where can people pick up Beyond Reason? Okay, well, you can go to the website. The, uh, the beyondreason.info has all, it's the only place you can get all the different formats. The ebook readers, hardcover, softcover, audiobook. Mm -hmm. and, uh, or you can buy it uh, through Amazon or barnesandnoble.com. <clears throat> um, anything online will have it. You can either search Corbin, K-O-R-B-O-N, or uh, Beyond Reason, and it'll get you there. All right, nice, nice. Greg, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show here. Um, you know, I tried to sort of give you leeway telling the story because it's such a compelling story that the last thing the audience wants to hear is me jumping in with, with ridiculous questions uh, until we sort of got to the, to the end of the story. And I just I can't thank you enough for, for writing this story, the bravery it must have taken to revisit the death of your son and have to pour over that in word form must have been so difficult. And, and for you to have the bravery to do that and to tell this remarkable story that, as you said, the media just wasn't going to tell, you know, is tremendous. We need more brave people like you who are willing to stand up and say, hey, something happened here and the world needs to know about it. And that's really, you know, a big part of the story of Beyond Reason. It's, it's, it's something truly magical happened. Something magical came out of a, a, a terrible tragedy, and and you know to 
sweep it under the rug or to ignore it really wouldn't do justice to, you know, Brian's gift to the world, which was that he really opened a lot of people's eyes to the possibilities of uh, this magic that's out there. So, like I said, I can't thank you enough. It's been a tremendous conversation here, and I wish you the best of luck, and thank you for putting the book out. Well, Brian, was such a, a great gift. It's always a pleasure to be able to, to share it. So thanks for having me, and uh, those were good questions. I really enjoyed the interview. That does it for this edition of BOA Audio Season 6. Big, big thanks to Dr. Greg Corbin for coming on the show and sharing that amazing story. You can find out more from him at the website www.beyondreason.info. And, of course, the book is Beyond Reason, Lessons from the Loss of a Gifted Child. Check it out. Moving right along now, it's time for BOA Audio Listener Feedback. And as teased last week, we're only going to do one email here on the program this week because it is super long, and just this one alone really would constitute several from other BOA Audio listeners. But the content is very good, so I wanted to make sure it gets its just due. It comes from Mary in Seattle, and here is what she has to say. I really enjoyed your show on spontaneous human combustion. I think I have an idea of why people are so put off by this topic in general and would prefer to not acknowledge it as real. Most of these cases seem to happen to people when they are alone in their apartments. Many of us live by ourselves, and the idea of sitting home alone, perhaps in a small cramped flat, and suddenly being taken by such a powerful preternatural force sends chills through the soul. Most paranormal phenomena have at least one or two theories that help to explain the occurrence. With SHC, there are absolutely no theories, no plausible hypotheses, and no distinguishing characteristics that might link the victims, other than, perhaps remotely, a geographic connection. If one were sitting home alone at night and died of a heart attack, no one would think anything of it. But if one were sitting alone at night and died of spontaneous human combustion, all your friends would think about it, for a long time, and probably into the wee hours of the night. A certain horror surrounds the occurrence. One's name is forever encapsulated in the annals of the anomalous. One's footsteps on this earth are associated only with one's death. A death distinguished as bizarre, paranormal, and possibly supernatural. Although left unsaid, naturally one wonders if SHC could possibly be associated by a supernatural agent, an entity of some kind. And if this unpleasant speculation could be true, what terrible secret karma might have led the victims to such an awful fate? Many of the cases mentioned on your show seem to be lives characterized by loneliness. How often does SHC occur with another present? Apparently only very rarely. And does it occur outdoors? Is it ever actually witnessed? Apparently not. So it's not only the most notorious of deaths, but also one of the loneliest. Is it therefore any wonder that people shy away from acknowledging this enigma, and yet dying so suddenly would not, after all, be a bad way to go? Death is apparently quick and relatively painless. It is only we the living, especially we who live alone in apartments, who must accept the fact that we are just as susceptible to this dark fate as any other hapless, solitary lady in a flimsy bathrobe and satin slippers. Anyway... It was really an excellent program, Tim. Keep up the good work. Cheers, Mary in Seattle. 
Well, thank you for writing in, Mary. Let me return the favor here and thank you for an excellent email. I mean, just tremendous stuff here. Read like poetry. And reading it out loud here again, just, I was blown away once again by just how thoughtful this email was and how well written it was. That's why we want to really spotlight it here on BOA Audio Listener Feedback as the standalone email of the week. Tremendous stuff, Mary. Really thought-provoking. And you bring up some interesting points, you know. It is really creepy stuff. Just totally creepy. I really don't have much to say here. I just wanted to really give the floor over to Mary and her fantastic email. So, thank you for writing in, Mary. Great stuff, and uh, I hope the BOA Audio listeners enjoyed that as much as I did. If you'd like to be a part of future installments of BOA Audio listener feedback, do you think you have thoughts that could top Mary's email just now? Send them along my way. You can do it via a number of methods. You can write to boaaudio at hotmail.com. You can head on over to the website banalofamerica.com, B-I-N-N-A-L-L of America.com, and click the contact button. And the final method, of course, is to join up at the official BOA forum, theusofe.com, T-H-E-U-S-O-F-E.com. We call it BOA's Paranormal Playground. It is the United States of Esoterica, and if you cannot find it via that, mishmash of letters, just head on over to BOA and click the forum button. And of course, you can find me on Facebook and Twitter. Just punch in Banal, B-I-N-N-A-L-L, and I will pop right up. Feel free to befriend me, follow me, or poke me. It's all good, and I'd be happy to have you as part of my online circle of friends. Now, please allow me to thank the esteemed and infamous BOA staff. Leslie, Chiron, Regan Lee, Joe V, Tina Senna, Rochelle Hawks, Richard Thomas, Marla Pena, Bruce Pretty, Tony Morrill, our contributing cartoonist Annie Carollin, and our webmaster Jeremy Boston. We say it all the time here at the end of the program, but it is the truth, my friends. If you're only listening to BOA Audio and you're not reading the columns at Banal of America, then you're only getting half the story. BOA, make it a part of your everyday search for esoteric news and opinion. Now comes the time in the program where we pass the basket around to the BOA Audio listeners and ask you to make a donation to BOA Audio and Banal of America. How do you do that? There's two ways to do so. You can head on over to BOA and click the PayPal button. They'll walk you through the process. It is safe and secure. But maybe you don't trust the internet and you want to donate via snail mail. You can do that by sending your donation to Tim Banal. P.O. Box 232, Pinehurst, Mass. 01866, and you spell Pinehurst, P-I-N-E-H-U-R-S-T. So altogether, the address is Tim Benall, P.O. Box 232, Pinehurst, Mass. 01866. And if you didn't have time to write that all down, it is posted at B.O.A. We say it here week after week, but it bears repeating, folks. No donation is too small, and all donations go towards Banal of America and BOA Audio to help keep the website and the audio series up and running, freely available, and commercial-free for all of our great readers and listeners the world over. Next time on BOA Audio, we are once again going to delve into the fringes of Esoterica, 
with our guest, Cullen O'Reilly, author of the book, Deadly Equines, the shocking true story of meat-eating and murderous horses. Yes, you heard me right, the shocking true story of meat-eating and murderous horses. Having read the book and spoken to Cullen for over two hours, I can tell you that this is truly some mind-bending material here that he has uncovered about the remarkable nature of horses. Just tremendous stuff across the board. When I hung up the phone after talking to Cullen O'Reilly, I said to myself, that was a BOA Audio classic. It is truly one for the books, my friends. Cullen O'Reilly, Deadly Equines, The Shocking True Story of Meat-Eating and Murderous Horses. It will have you looking at horses and wildlife in general in a very different and suspicious light. That's next time on BOA Audio. And on that note, we close the book on another installment of BOA Audio. Big, big thanks once again to Dr. Greg Corbin. Thanks to our emailer, Mary in Seattle, for her contribution to BOA Audio listener feedback. And, of course, huge thanks to all you folks out there, the hardcore BOA Audio listeners, the folks who tune in all the way to the end and spread the word about this program far and wide amongst the paranormal outreaches throughout the Internet. You guys are awesome. You are the fuel that drives the BOA machine. Without you, we would be a shell of ourselves, and that is something that is never lost on this broadcaster. Thank you for making BOA Audio a part of your esoteric audio playlist. Until next time, this is Tim Benall, thanking you for listening and signing off.